This is a HeadGum Podcast. While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. So this is a big 350. Yeah. Boy, I'm so excited about it. We read a book that I, a lot of people are big fans of. Well, it's a little sexy. Sure. You know, it's a it's um popular among teens, I think probably of a certain age. Um and you know, there are th- there are things and people in it that you could say are are monstrous or or sort of you know, yeah, it's not not human people from different sides getting into conflict. Mm-hmm. What but also probably working together sometimes. Yeah, and having emotions. Some of yeah. them strong ones. Mm-hmm. I think there might even be a truck. <laughs> Welcome to Overdue. This is a podcast about the books you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name is Andrew, and as you can probably infer from the conversation we just had, the book that Craig read this week for our show where one of us reads a book that we've never read before and then tells the other one about it is Slaughterhouse-Five by Kurt Vonnegut. <laughs> so for anyone counting up to the big 350, you did a better job of counting than I did because mm-hmm. in our internal planning document... Uh, I just forgot that April 1st existed, April Fool's, and <laughs> the day itself got you. <laughs> and so uh, I got us all excited to do Twilight Breaking Dawn for the uh-huh. big 350, um, but that was and has always been scheduled for April 8th, no matter what episode <laughs> we hit on that day. Uh, and also, like, and we could have probably made it work, but we also have a, a trip to old Nolans Nol- Nol- coming up, as yes. the locals call it, Nolans. So we are going to be busy. So we didn't have time. We didn't have time to read the vampire sex book. So we decided to get unstuck in time and talk about Vonnegut's Slaughterhouse Five. Um, and it's a really good fit for our comedy podcast because oh. you can't spell Slaughterhouse without Laughter House. <laughs> it's five. Um, so this was actually a a book we've been wanting to tackle it was a Patreon recommendation from Robert so thank you Robert for supporting us patreon.com it's been 300 episodes since we talked about Kurt Vonnegut and do you know what we talked about for the first five minutes of that episode it seems irresponsible (laughs) that we have been allowed to do 300 episodes of anything yeah Especially um, after we, what do you think we talked about for five minutes before God, we even said I, the name of the show? It's, it's like pancakes. It was it was donuts and bagels. Okay, that was I was not that far off actually. Yeah. Um. um so th- there was a phase of the show where <laughs> the intros <laughs> were a little more freeform. And it was took a just little... a, it took just a little bit longer to get to the thing. Uh, yeah, it was some vocal jazz. So um, I'm going to talk about this it's book. It's about the dumb, stupid things that you don't say. Vocal jazz, they say. So I'm going to talk about this <laughs> book. Um, it came in a collection that you got for me uh, many moons ago. I do not um, remember this. You're welcome. You got it for me as a gift. It was very I'm kind. I'm sure I did. I'm sure I was It's very got this like smirking Vonnegut on it. It's really Look at him. neat. It's got a little bookmark tassel, so I could... Oh, no, that's you know, such a considerate kind of gift. Cool. Is, I did a good job. Good. Um, and so we have covered two other Vonnegut books, Cat's Cradle and Breakfast of Champions. Uh, but this was like his first big one, right, Andrew? This is his first big one. Um, Cat's Cradle was in, I think, 65, and Breakfast of Champions was 73, and this was 1969. Nice. So this was... Yeah, right. And it was, so it was right up, split in the uprights of... Vonnegut books that we've read. Sure. Um, and yeah, his, uh, I think Cat's Cradle is almost as well regarded. Like, I feel like if anybody's going to tell you about two Vonnegut books, it's going to be this one and then that one. 
That sounds yes, and if you you might get like Welcome to the Monkey House, which is I think the yeah more well known short story collection. Yeah, but um, this was this was his first big like financially successful book. It was made into a film three years later in 1972 that was both critically acclaimed and enjoyed by the author, which I feel like almost never happens and with book adaptations. No one but, paid money to yeah, see. Yeah, it. nobody went to go see it. So you got it. You can pick two. <laughs> you can't have all three things. Sure. Um, but yeah, his so a little bit of a, a primer, just a rundown of, of Vonnegut. First novel was Player Piano in 1952. He was born in 1922, died in 2007, and for a long time was viewed as a sci-fi author. And this book actually was part of him like getting out of that niche. I feel like a lot of genre writers eventually try to prove that they can do something else. Sure. Um, but yeah, it's it I I think that's the most evident in the the New York Times review of it. So this this is the 1969 New York Times review. Um and the, at, at what point the author says, "Now there are two things I haven't told you about Billy Pilgrim and I'm hesitant to do so because when I tell you what they are, you'll want to put Kurt Vonnegut back in the science fiction category he's been trying to climb out of and you'll be wrong." Um, and then he concludes the review with, it sounds crazy. It sounds like a fantastic last ditch effort to make sense of a lunatic universe, but there's so much more to this book. It is very tough and very funny. It is sad and delightful and it works, uh, but it's also very Vonnegut, which means you'll either love it or push it back in the science fiction corner. <clears throat> well, So that may have just as much to do with the review writer's like view mm-hmm. of genre fiction as, as about anything that, that Vonnegut was trying to do, but... It- it also, I think, lost both the Nebula and Hugo Awards to uh, The Left Hand of Darkness by Le Guin. So it was like considered a sci-fi book by people who consider sci-fi books, which is interesting. Do you ever feel a little bit bad for somebody who does a really great thing at the same time as somebody else just happens to have done a slightly greater thing? <laughs> yeah, Sure. Do you have other examples? No, I just, I mean I could if I had come prepared to talk about this, but it just occurred to me that like there's all, there are other examples of that, I'm sure. All I can think of is how our friend Ben is uh as I recall has always been mad that Saving Private Ryan lost the Oscar to Shakespeare in Love, which I don't have strong feelings about like either film, but two good things, only one can win. <laughs> it's the Highlander syndrome. That's what they um, call it. And Vonnegut, yeah, he was he was an atheist, which I think will come into into play, and that caused some interpersonal conflict between him and his his wife. Oh yeah, um, okay. In the in the sixties and seventies, um, he was a partly because of this book and how it deals with World War, World War Two and Dresden. He was a hero of the anti war movement. Mm-hmm. Uh, when it was at its like peak during the Vietnam era, yep, and he remained critical of things like the the war on terror and like the George W. Bush administration later in life. Though he died in two thousand seven, so, um, but but yeah, I read his his very last collection of short stories once, "Man Without a Country," I think it's called, and and yeah, some of it is about you know the the beginning of our current forever war situation. So that's fun. That is fun. A lot of fun. Um. Slaughterhouse Five, like I said, published in 1969, a sort of sci-fi, sort of World War II novel, um, and the World War II-est part of it is that the main character survives the firebombing of Dresden, which is a thing that Vonnegut himself did as a German POW. He tried to write about; he was trying to write a book about this experience for a lot of years before he finally did it. Yes. Um, but yeah, the the firebombing of Dresden is 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 complicated. It's um, it is commonly believed that the death and destruction caused by the Allies bombing the German city of Dresden, it was disproportionate to the like military advantages of doing that. Yes, correct. But at the same time. Some a lot of like far right and neo Nazi affiliated and like Holocaust denying people have drawn some false equivalencies. Like they they themselves have called the firebombing a Holocaust. 
Yeah, there's there's a there's a couple passages um, in the back of this collection. One is like a, a forward to like the 25th anniversary edition, and one is another uh, either back of book essay or intro or something. And he talks about people who have basically called the the flip side, where people have actually accused um, Vonnegut of attempting to like come up with another thing in relation like it's almost like a holocaust denial in, in saying this was an important thing that was bad uh-huh. uh is like downplaying how bad the holocaust was yeah and it's i mean it so official figures yeah of how many people died in the firebombing of dresden are as low as like twenty thousand to twenty five thousand. yes but propaganda and misinformation both at the time from the nazis and in subsequent decades yes has inflated it numbers have gone as high as half a million people um the review of slaughterhouse in the new york times that i just quoted claims 130,000 i think slaughterhouse itself says 135,000 those figures are both based on research by this guy david irving who was not at the time but at least from the 1980s on has been a vocal Holocaust denier. So like, that's cool. I'm not not saying that Vonnegut participated in that on purpose, but that was the source of the figure that is used in this book. And so, yeah, like it can, can something be a war crime without being as bad as the the worst war crime? I think we can, I think we can say, yes, it can, but just, because I, I had heard just in like casual conversation, people bring up the the Dresden thing as because the World War Two often gets to be like the good war where the allies yes, were good yes. and they only did good things and the Axis was bad and they only did bad things. And I think people point to Dresden where there was like this massive loss of life and of architecture and of art and culture and stuff as an example of bad stuff that the allies also did. It's, it's just I... In, t- in this era of like misinformation and yeah. info wars, for oh, lack of God. a better term, um, I guess just always be trying to investigate like context and people's motives and stuff because like, I think yeah. I think yeah it was bad. I'm I'm saying all kinds of stuff. That well, I'm hold on, let me ground say, in the book. But, let me ground in yeah, the book sure, because sure, sure, sure. I think Vonnegut is as someone who was literally there is trying to communicate how bad it was. Mm-hmm. Um, let me pull up, actually, the passage that he wrote about it. Sure. If you um, need a sec, I can vamp a little bit. No, 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 no. I okay, have good, it. Okay, good, good, Wow, um, so prepared. Look yes. at you. Um, this was from when George Will said that he had trivial- trivialized the Holocaust by writing about Dresden. Um he said, it is a non-judgmental expression of astonishment at what I saw and did in Dresden after it was firebombed so long ago, when in the company of other prisoners of war and slave laborers who had survived the raid, I dug corpses from cellars and carried them unidentified, their names recorded nowhere, to monumental funeral pyres. The corpses could have been anybody, including me, and there were surely representatives among them, whether collaborators or slaves or refugees of every nation involved in the European half of war. World War II. Um, he goes on to talk about like visiting Auschwitz and talking to survivors of the Holocaust. And he says the drama at Auschwitz was about man's inhumanity to man. Um, the drama of any air raid on a civilian population, a gesture in diplomacy to a man like Henry Kissinger, is about the in- <laughs> is about the inhumanity of many of man's inventions to man. That is the dominant theme of what I've written during the past forty five years or so. And the dog of my future lying at my feet is snoring now. He says. So, yeah, I think for him, writing about Dresden is putting it in the catalog of, and we'll talk about, like, why I think the book does this successfully, like, in the larger scheme of just, yo, what are we doing? That I think kind of jives with how a lot of writing that came out of World War One is like, of, like, just how did we do this? What is yeah. wrong with us? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, That is not meant to diminish the particular evils that did transpire. Yeah. I, I guess what I was trying to get at was it just like, it bums me out when bad people take a thing that was bad. Yeah. And like twist it for their own ends or like distort it 
for the to their own ends to the point where we even we even have to have this conversation that's about a good like point. whether a thing was bad or as bad or whatever like it yeah people still died it's a bummer yeah that's an understatement it's <laughs> a huge understatement um Ugh. well let's take a quick break and then i will tell you about this book that also involves aliens all that and more <laughs> after the break <laughs> <laughs> Andrew, it's 2019, but my teeth don't feel clean. What do I do? <laughs> well, those are two closely related facts, and I'm glad that you brought. I'm glad you brought this to me. Okay, right? help me, my friend. I'm friends with Robert Quip, the founder of Quip, one of our sponsors <laughs> okay. this week, our only sponsor this week. Um, as he has told me many times, one of the most important things we do for our health every day is brushing our teeth. Yet most of us don't do it properly. He's a bit of a scold, this guy. Uh, Quip is a better electric toothbrush created by dentists and designers, and it was designed to make brushing your teeth more simple, affordable, and even enjoyable. Let me tell you Let me tell you a couple things that I, I like about Quip. One of the things I like is that there is a built-in two-minute timer that pulses every 30 seconds to remind you when to switch sides. Before I had Quip, I definitely would just kind of rub the brush over my teeth a couple times and be done. And I think we've all been guilty of that, but but Quip helps us with that particular problem. Also, you know when your brush heads get old and nasty, not going to happen with Quip because brush heads are delivered to you automatically on a dentist-recommended schedule every three months for just five bucks I've been using my Quip toothbrush for a long time, and my teeth feel great. I went to the dentist. I didn't have any cavities. I told you the story already, but I'm reiterating it again because you told me about your nasty mouth, yep. and I just think Quip could help you out with that. Okay. That's why I love Quip and why they are backed by over 20,000 dental professionals. Quip starts at just $25, and if you go to getquip.com slash overdue, you get your first refill pack for free with a Quip electric toothbrush. That's a $5 value for free. If you go to G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash overdue, fix your nasty mouth. Quip. Okay, so we're going to talk about this book now. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned in the in the first section, which is not the pre-show, it's just the show, Craig. It's the show. <laughs> it's the, pre, the prequel to... No. Yep, that thing. Um, <laughs> that Vonnegut was there. He had he had served in I think the hundred and sixtieth division, been you know deployed into the Battle of the Bulge, um, which was like this German offensive that surprised the Allies, which I think was kind of a precursor to why they went on to bomb places like Dresden in the first place. And now it's gone on to be like a phrase that's used in like weight loss advice not articles, great. which is not great. Pretty bad. <laughs> <laughs> no one no one's like hey want to lower your mason dixon line like no one is doing that's not a thing people should say um but so he with in a few weeks at most um if not shorter he was then like captured um by german soldiers and then he was stationed at a, at a camp near not stationed he was imprisoned at a camp near dresden and that's, so that's a matter of speaking I yes guess. um and so the book opens, and I actually had no idea that this was in the book. It opens with an unnamed narrator that might as well be Kurt Vonnegut um, mm-hmm. telling the reader uh, more or less that the book happened. What does he say? All this happened, more or less. <laughs> the war parts, anyway, are pretty much true. One guy I knew really was shot in Dresden for taking a teapot that wasn't his. Another guy I knew really did threaten to have his personal enemies killed by hired gunmen after the war, and so on. I've changed all the names. Um, <laughs> so, you get, like, even in that, like, opening couple sentences, you get a sense of, like, how conversational the book can be, how oddly funny he can be, um, and this disorienting sense of, like, what is real and what is not. Like, he goes on in this chapter to tell you that uh, he tried to write a book. He was having a lot of trouble. He almost called it the children. What is the uh, the children's crusade? Um, and that's like an alternate name for the book. Uh, the children's crusade: a duty danced with death. 
Mm-hmm. Do you know that like the history of that title? Was it just always a subtitle, or was it? I that I, I know don't we we've know. talked about other books where the title gets changed for publication in some other market and then just becomes the main <laughs> title. But I, I don't, don't know if think that's, that's the deal with this. Yeah, I wonder if that's actually like because he writes about it in the book and talks about the Children's Crusade, which was a historical event where they were like training young people. For, to fight for the pope in afghanistan but like instead they just sold them to people in africa it's really bizarre he mm-hmm. i read slaughterhouse five to find out more i suppose i don't know um he, don't take our word <laughs> don't for take it my word for it um <laughs> but so he concludes at the end of this um that this chapter that he's like okay here's what i can do i'm going to tell you about this guy billy pilgrim and uh listen it opens like billy pilgrim was unstuck in time and he tells you almost all of billy pilgrim's life in about like two or three pages um and it's like i'll try and give us a chronological account of the book but it is worth knowing up front that like one of the hallmarks of this story is that billy pilgrim like will just be in another time in a way that other books just like jump around in time like a quentin tarantino movie just jumps around kind of just to confuse you or make things thematically resonant and that is happening here but it is also literally happening to our main character billy um Mm -hmm. it'll just say like and now he's in 1960 or and now he's back in germany um in a in a way that maybe it's real maybe he's just like had a mental breakdown after suffering post-traumatic stress disorder from the war. And then like later in his life, he's in a plane crash. So mm-hmm. take it all with a grain of salt, mm-hmm. I guess. I don't mm-hmm. know. Um, how much do you remember? Cause you've read this book, right? Okay. So I remember, <laughs> I remember a lot of time jumping around. Sure. I remember the human zoo. Oh, sure. And the sex part, like the the sex in the human zoo. Yeah, that part. Uh-huh. Um and that he is said to have had a large dingus. I think I remember that even just There's like reading. a there's a line in the book that <laughs> is just like incidentally <laughs> he's well endowed. Okay. Um and that's that's most of it. Sure. It's been a hot decade, I think, since I've since I've read this. One and of yeah, them mostly hot I just decades. remember it being it was very disjointed and I you know, you enjoy reading Vonnegut's prose because it's always very lively and clever. Yes. But the like I think the the disjointedness of it means that the plot didn't really stick in my head. Yeah, that makes sense. That lot. makes sense. And yeah. there's at least a couple parts in the book that like kinda wink wink nod nod to the fact that this doesn't have a conventional plot. Um, so you mentioned the alien zoo thing, and we're not going to like jump to that scene right now, but early on, our narrator tells us that Billy Pilgrim, after he served in World War II, where he was at the firebombing of Dresden, uh, he became unstuck in time, was um, abducted by aliens from a planet called Trafalmador, right. who kind of told him about how he was experiencing time. They put him in an alien zoo where they could all look at him, but then he came back and he like snuck out of his house that his daughter was trying to keep him in. Cause he might've been going insane and he got on the radio somehow and started telling everyone about the aliens. Um, and that's intimated that maybe that message caught on. Um, mm-hmm. and he met an untimely end at some point. Um, that's like how the book sets up who Billy Pilgrim is by like really giving us a macro level view of who he is, which I think like sets up how the book is going to approach time in general. It's not just like, like here's a snapshot and now we're going to go through linearly and like work it through. Mm-hmm. Um, so when he is in World War II, he is a chaplain assistant. It's like imply that he doesn't really believe in god but he grew up with a lot of imagery of jesus and like a really tortured jesus and this is a way for you mean jesus well but like specific like really grotesque like uh images of him on the cross like in his house and stuff like that sure um and 
he gets assigned to go over into Germany. You know, it's towards the end of the war. Um, he's young. There's a lot of reminders in this book of how young everyone was at the time. Um, you know, 17, 18, 19. And he is captured pretty quickly while he is traveling with a trio of guys led by a man named Roland Weary, who is like a warmongering bully jerk who's really excited to fight some Germans. And the three of them, um, well, they get caught and then they are sent to a prison camp um, where Roland dies along the way and is like, convinces some dude that it's all Billy's fault. <laughs> As like, <laughs> I guess yeah, I and mean, he like feels like it's Billy's fault that they got captured in the first place, which is not really true. But um, Roland's just one of those guys who just nothing's his fault, and it's always somebody's. Um, so why not pick on this guy? And they arrive at this camp, and this is where you get some of the like gallows humor of Vonnegut, where like these Englishmen who have been imprisoned at this German camp sort of like run the place. Like, they've been there since the time when there was enough food to treat prisoners well. So they have all this extra stuff, and they're going to put on a production of Cinderella, and they're, like, giving everybody extra sugar and stuff. And Sounds meet. like a real, like, Hogan's Heroes kind of yes. situation where this is it's going to be a POW camp, but it'll be fun. Yes. And so you get this, like, really wonderful uh, snippet of... Um, Vonnegut's prose where he is describing um, like the the I guess the mess hall or something wherever they're being kept um, and he says there were long tables set for a banquet at each place was a bowl made from a can that had once contained powdered milk a smaller can was a cup a taller more slender can was a tumbler each tumbler was filled with warm milk at each place was a safety razor, a washcloth, a package of razor blades, a chocolate bar, two cigars, a bar of soap, ten cigarettes, a book of matches, a pencil, and a candle. Only the candles in the soap were of, of German origin. They had a ghastly, opalescent similarity. The British had no way of knowing it, but the candles in the soap were made from the fat of rendered Jews and gypsies and fairies and communists and other enemies of the state. So it goes. So it goes. Um, so he does that a the, lot. The, yeah, the the fairy thing is is something that I had in my notes but didn't. Yeah, didn't go for it. Bring up in um when we were talking about the the author and like book publication stuff before, but yeah, this is one of the apparently one of the first works of fiction that also acknowledged that um that gays were targeted. Yeah, as yeah. part of the home the the uh, Holocaust. Yeah, there's a great... So that's like that's the totality of my comment, but No, no, and well that that it's worth devoting some time to. There's a play by Martin Sherman called Bent actually that I think I was in in college that if, that is very Yeah, because I think I've seen it. Yeah, it's a very powerful play. Um and it, that's about that also, but I think I learned that fact Andrew in a, in reading about this book's like censorship and how challenged it has been right, in various yeah, yeah, libraries yeah. and like mm -hmm. Some of it boils down, like most challenges to books, it's like, did it mention a thing that the school board doesn't like, like regardless of context? Or did it mention a thing that like the conservative, like religious right lobby doesn't truck with? Yes, like, yes. Like how Harry Potter is Satanism? I guess so. Um so that that but yeah like i mean it's it's vonnegut's atheism that gets him targeted for that sort of thing sometimes true. i think that comes up in this book <clears throat> mm -hmm, um mm -hmm. it's always you know maybe it says a cuss or something and that gets it challenged but but it's actually but about yeah it's always else. it's always that sort of thing yeah yeah um so i wrote i read that passage not only because of the like the way that it just drops into some really heavy stuff at the end, but also the, the kind of perfunctory nature of a lot of the prose, it's almost like you are reading uh, like a journalist's account of a lot of this stuff, even though most of it's made up, right? Like, or like it's a fictional account of a thing that happened to Von, whatever you want to classify it as, sure. um, which does a really good job of like blending the stuff he's making up that is sci-fi with the stuff that is real. So let's talk about this so it goes motif let's that do it. is apparently uh, by one count is like found 106 times in the book. 
Um, and it is the a thing that the narrator has gotten from Billy Pilgrim in talking to Billy Pilgrim about the Tralfamadorians, who are these aliens we'll talk about in just a second. Mm-hmm. And they experience time differently than we do they see in four dimensions so their understanding of death is different than ours here's a quote when a tralfamadorian sees a corpse all he thinks is that the dead person is in bad condition in that particular moment but that the same person is just fine in plenty of other moments so people don't necessarily like they don't die in the same way that humans experience or earthlings experience death um so you just say when someone dies so so it goes and that is a thing when when it's introduced, and I'm like, oh, that's a profound way to think about it. Okay, literally any time a character dies or people are talked about dying or something happens, and he wants to communicate that that person has died, he says, "So it goes," uh, and it gives a lot of moments that he doesn't have a lot of time for, like kind of this one. Like, let me remind you of all the people that were killed in the Holocaust and then I'm just going to move on I'll get it across with so it goes and then just kind of like roll on yeah that that concept of time remind let's, let me just bring it into my wheelhouse as it yes, reminds please. me of the aliens who live in the wormhole in Star Trek New Space Nine <laughs> who do not understand how linear time works because for them, like any moment in time, like they're all the same. Yes. Uh-huh. They could all be happening like simultaneously and you can just jump back and forth. I think so. That sounds kind of like this. I that, guess. Is there another, okay, here's a who let's get high and ask a question for a second. Is all there right. a different way to view time than either of those two? What do you mean? Okay. <clears throat> Okay, okay, hear me out. Is there, are there more than two ways to view time? Do you view it like linearly or all at once? Or could there be another? Because I feel like this trope of like a a different species um, that exists somewhere else that perceives time differently or like some elder species or whatever, that that is a thing I've seen. time and again um Uh, in fiction and i just don't know if there's another there's gotta be another way there's a there's a sort of like subset or like a cousin (laughs) to linear time because you know how time travel works in like every tv show or movie ever where you can go back in time and change one thing and then mm. come back forward in time. Mm-hmm. And like the only thing is that is changed is the one thing that you intended to change. In the first sure. <laughs> so it's like a, a, like an isolated stream within linear time, as opposed to the butterfly effect okay. thing where you go back in time and like kick somebody in the butt and then <laughs> you come back forward and everything's different. Yeah. Oh, I see what you're saying. Okay, mm-hmm. there's like so there's like two, but maybe there's like there's subcategories. I buy yeah, that. like yeah. The, the, at least that. Okay, sure. Um, so at this idea that. in the book is coming from these aliens that I've said they're called the Tralfamadorians, and he meets them um, actually later in time, the night, the evening of his daughter's wedding. How could you do this to me on this? The, on this yeah, day sure. Of my daughter's wedding. Mm-hmm. Um, he is taken by a spaceship to Trafalmador, where they put him in that zoo. And these little people, um, here's how they are described. They were two feet high and green and shaped like plumber's friends. Their suction cups <laughs> were on the ground. You plungers? Yeah. Um, plumber's friends? Yeah. Uh, I always heard, Why would you stick your friend in a toilet I had the always time? heard them referred to as plumber's helper because I think that's what Mario called them in his cartoon. Um <laughs> But anyway, their suction cups were on the ground and their shafts, which were extremely flexible, usually pointed to the sky. At the top of each shaft was a little hand with a green eye in its palm. The creatures were friendly and they could see in four dimensions. They pitied earthlings for being able to see only three. They had many, many wonderful things to teach earthlings about time. Um, and then later he's talking about how they let him read a Tralfamadorian book, which he had a hard time with um, because it just feels like a bunch of like a clump of symbols. And they say they they read it all at once, 
Um, there is no beginning, no middle, no end, no suspense, no moral, no causes, no effects. What we love in our books are the depths of many marvelous moments seen all at one time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess like, so why is this here? And you mentioned that review that is like, be careful or else you're going to be like, oh, it's just another sci-fi book. Um, Billy first becomes unstuck in time when he's in Germany, I believe when he is imprisoned, but it's it's a little ways before the firebombing itself. And he starts experiencing like jumps forward and jumps back. It's unclear if he carries knowledge between them. It doesn't really deal with that in the way that like classic time travel stories do, where mm-hmm. it's like, oh, I've seen the future. Now what do I do? It's like events are unchangeable. He just moves between them. Um and that is a thing that he has a hard time wrapping his brain around where the Trafalmadorians are like, listen, uh, we know that the universe ends. It's our fault. Some dude is messing around with a rocket ship and he blows up the whole universe. Our bad. And he's like, well, why wouldn't you change these? Like, we can't. It's time. It just happens. We've seen it. Like, we see you <laughs> naked in a zoo right now. Mm-hmm. Um. I guess you would just like try to focus on the good times. That's what they say. Like memory. Yes. Except forward. They say. Like memory except there's, you got back and where's memory and forwards memory. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. Um, They want us to like just focus on the good stuff. We spend eternity looking at pleasant moments, they say. Um, Ignore the awful times and concentrate on the good ones. To which Billy replies, um... And then the, just moves to another scene. Uh, and I think what Vonnegut's doing here is so like. Is writing a really mediocre wedding toast. Maybe. Oh, gosh. Um, God, what if he did write your wedding toast? Would that be? Oh, boy. Probably be a real bummer, actually. <laughs> be like really funny, but a bummer. You would probably think it was funny and clever at the time. And then you'd go back to your hotel room and you'd think about it and you'd get really bummed out. Yeah, that's probably true. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's talking about how horrible Dresden is, and Billy experiences it later. And, and Dre- Dresden, the, the thing bombing. that happened at yes. Dresden. Okay. So, and and it's compounded by the other horrible things that have happened to him already, which being imprisoned and uh, taken to this prison camp where like the one guy dies and blames him for it, and so. Paul Lazaro's like, I'm gonna kill you one day when we get out of this war, and then they take them to Dresden. Which initially is like interesting to him because it's this big, beautiful city and he's never been in a big city before. Mm-hmm. And they're like, hey, we're going to house you in this slaughterhouse um, that we don't use anymore because everyone ate all the cows <laughs> and we don't have any livestock anymore. So you're just sure. going to live in here. Mm-hmm. Um, and then not long after they're there is when the Allies bomb the place. And it's horrible. Um, and similar to that passage from Vonnegut's letter that I read before, like, they can't identify people. At one point, he is tasked with, like, digging people out of a hole in the ground, and it gets so bad that they're like, screw it, we're just going to burn all the people in this hole and mm-hmm. just make it go away. Mm-hmm. And so he comes out of this experience, and he gets committed to, like, a veteran's mental hospital for a period of time. And I think that the whole time travel thing is just, like, you know, it's a mental, it is a literalized mental break. It is a an an attempt for him to make sense of what he saw in a way that like acknowledges that it doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. Like the world, as we were saying before, like the, how could the world be this bad? How could such a terrible thing happen? Or even like, it's such a, it is such a bad thing. And it's such like a, such a big bad thing that, I can tuck it in amongst all this like fantastical sci-fi stuff and they both seem similarly like unreal or or as like, plausible or as dreamy, the other. Yes. Or yeah yeah yeah. It is it is just as plausible for me to have been kidnapped by aliens and taken to this zoo where people examine humanity as we would bomb this town that was mostly civilians and didn't have any military objective that we could discern and, mm-hmm. and kill tens of thousands of people. Right. Um, and so that actually, as I say that out loud, like makes the human zoo thing make more sense. So when the aliens kidnap him 
and take him across <laughs> the universe. Uh-huh. And they they recreate. They put him in a geodesic dome, and they've stolen a bunch of furniture from Sears to give him like a lazy boy. I and mean, same. They give him a TV, but they can't make the TV work, so they just put like a picture of a cowboy on it. Also um, same. <laughs> and he has like I think the only book they have for him is Valley of the Dolls, and then whatever their other books are. Um, and they keep him there naked, and all the. Tralfamadorians come and like look at him and they like talk to each other about how he perceives time because he's some sort of nincompoop. Uh-huh. Um they eventually kidnap like an actress or model uh and make her come live with him and they have a kid. And that's what you were okay. alluded to before. They do have sex. Um, but she doesn't get to come back from there. She has to stay there with his kids. <laughs> doesn't really make any sense well, all right i guess uh and back on earth there are all sorts of tabloids about how she like maybe you know disappeared or you know, all sorts of like kind of celebrity tabloid stuff mm-hmm. um i but as i say that like as i say it now it makes more sense in the he, what different ways that vonnegut is trying to put humanity under a lens like different ways that he is trying to look at us and go what did we do here why are one of the one of those ways is literally to put us in a in a zoo so aliens can gawk at our our whole deal yeah i our (laughs) whole our whole deal in fact Mm -hmm. um his like his quote-unquote conventional like earth timeline that he's living when he's not jumping to and from World War Two and and space, um, is that he like he comes back from the war, he goes to like optometry school and marries the daughter of the dude in charge of the optometry school. So then he gets to own a bunch of like uh, optometrist offices and make a bunch of money. Um, when he is in recovery at this hospital, he does meet a guy named Elliot Rosewater. Uh, it was the first of a number of characters that I think are from other Vonnegut. Yeah, books. there's there's another there's a book that he did. Um, I think it was between Cat's Cradle and this one. Yes, called um, God bless you, Mister Rosewater. Yes, yes. Um, and Mister Rosewater is a big fan of Kilgore Trout, who is an author that we learn a lot about in in um, Breakfast of Champions, right? Um, yeah, that's. I think that's Breakfast of Champions is one of the ones that Trout plays a slightly more active role in. Like sometimes he is in in Vonnegut's fiction, he is just mentioned, or he plays a small role in something that's happening to somebody else. But then other times he's more central to the narrative, and I think he's slightly more central in Breakfast of Champions, as as I recall. But, yes. Um, yeah. Yeah. He's a um, Kilgore Trout is a fictionalized author of a ton of bad but maybe prophetic a little science fiction yeah the direct quote is his um, prose was frightful only his ideas were good is a thing right. that they actually say about trout in oh, this, this book. is kind of a, like a george lucas situation yeah, maybe <laughs> <laughs> um but his books so lost like, my train of thought in, in but, the but yeah in fiction his books are like these sci-fi books that Rosewater introduces um, Billy Pilgrim to, and P- Pilgrim later finds some in the back of like a porn bookstore bookstore in New York City, um, and the guy's like, "Why are you reading this garbage? I got all this porn over here." Mm-hmm. And um, one of them, so like he has these characters, many of whom are like they resemble some of the aliens that that uh, Pilgrim has met. Some of them are about time travel of some kind. And then one of them, um, which I believe is called The Gospel from Outer Space, uh, is a book that Billy reads. And remember that, like, Billy is a former chaplain and has been kind of, like, dealing with his feelings about Christianity vis-a-vis the war. Uh, In this book by Kilgore Trout, aliens, like, look at Earth and have a hard time wrapping wrapping themselves around the idea that Christians are so cruel. Um, that is the direct quote from this book, which mm-hmm. unfortunately feels like kind of an unfortunate cliche of a thing to unpack right now. Um, but it, it's novel in this book the way he goes about it. So 
aliens look at like the story of Jesus and they're like, this doesn't make any sense. Why do people act this way? <laughs> um, not that the story doesn't make sense, but like, how could people, what lesson are people taking from this story? And the aliens, I thought this was kind of interesting. They look at the story of the crucifixion of Christ and they say, oh, well, the lesson that people would take from this is don't lynch the guy who's well-connected. He's the son of God. <laughs> Which then... I mean, that's that's a that's a good, like, modern-day lesson, I guess, to, to internalize well, and about, s- like, white-collar crime. <laughs> <laughs> so then a, a paragraph later, the, the next step of that train of thought is that, like, oh, well, if there are people that you shouldn't do this to, that implies that there are people... Like, because of their connections, that implies that there are people you should do this to, which is bad. Um, and the aliens come to this, like, revelation that what if the story the story would, would have been better if Jesus truly were just, like, a nobody, and they killed him, and then God was like, A, you shouldn't do that, I'm going to punish you, because anybody mm-hmm. deserves to be, like, saved. Sure. Um, and, th- like, that then dovetails with some critiques of America that Vonnegut puts in here that have to do with like America doesn't have um I was thinking about the Odyssey. I'll get to that in a second. I'll make this connection for you, Andrew, because I'm confusing you. Good. Um <laughs> please do. He said in the somewhere in the book he says that like uh America is the is the wealthiest nation on earth, but its people are mainly poor and poor Americans are urged to hate themselves, he says. There are no tale, there are no folk traditions of men who were poor but extremely wise and virtuous, as in other nations. Um, and I, he then goes on to talk about like bars that uh, have like signs saying like, "If you're so smart, why ain't you rich?" Like up on the wall or something like that. Sure, yeah, like the the American thing is the rags to riches story, right? Yes. There's not like he still had rags, but. He, he was made cool. the best of it. Yes. <laughs> and that made me think of like some of the stuff we've been talking about on Homer time where like there's a lot about the treatment of beggars and treatment of immigrants and refugees and things like that. And a lot of that is because they have a perceived holiness or a potential connection to gods or whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, but Vonnegut really seems kind of pissed off about our our collective lack of a myth there that could be useful to us. Um, yeah, it's both. It's both that they're. I think poorer people in America are. I mean the 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 um the the phrase that goes around. I don't I don't know the origin point of this, but like everybody in America, every poor person just thinks that they are a temporarily embarrassed millionaire. Like yeah, everybody yeah. thinks that you know, right around the corner is my my chance to to go from rags to riches, and so they're they're both encouraged to feel bad about their own poverty but also to be jealous of or like distrustful of Mm -hmm. others who are in poverty are suffering from many of the same systemic issues but who look different or worship differently or are different in some other way yep that facilitates you know resentment and yeah yeah the the kinds of things that that politicians have 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 played on in trying to build up their own bases and like fragment their opposition yeah Yeah, so like how does that it's tough how does that fit here like his some of his primary objections and you see this you know represented in the book because like we are never given privy to any of the decisions that lead to the firebombing like we are never it's only people on the ground whose perspective we see. Um, right. So it, that that would have been when were the Pentagon Papers published? Because I feel like oh yeah, like about Vietnam and like yeah who is yeah making like the there's there is definitely yeah. a a um okay so that they would not have been published until 1971. But but it's it's interesting that we don't get any insight into that decision making process because hey the war that the United States was engaged was engaged in at the time yep <laughs> was one where the american public who were putting into office people who were you know in this war and extending this war they didn't have all the information so yep. i don't know that's yeah. probably like bad like 
freshman year poli sci <laughs> parallelism that I'm throwing. Well, out Billy's there, so just, that's what it made me think of. Billy and his wife Valencia, they have two kids, Barbara and I, I don't remember what his son's name is. His son is a really minor character who mostly exists to be to have you get told that he is a Green Beret who goes off to serve in Vietnam and is a reminder that like Vietnam is a real thing in the world of this book that is mm-hmm. going on. So that that's mm-hmm. what made me think of that is that like, yeah, this book is written, I think, with that in mind, with what are we doing now? What lessons have we not learned from World War II? What is it to be someone like Vonnegut who saw this firsthand and not really have people feel the same way about it as you? Because, like, no one on Earth really knows what Billy is experiencing. He just, like, it's unclear if he literally disappears. He doesn't. I don't think he does. It's not one of those time travel stories where he just, like, pops out, winks out of existence. He just moves forward in his life. Um, So he'll be, like, in bed with someone, and then he'll just be in space. And then he'll be an old man, and then he'll be a little kid. Um. And I think no one else has access to that because no one else has access to the mind of someone who could like witness such a thing and still exist. Sure. Um, yeah, I don't know. I feel like we've kind of jumped around, but that's obviously what the that's book like, is up to. That's what to. the book is doing, and so we did it on purpose, and you're welcome, everybody. Yeah. There's um this is how literary illusions work in hey, the space of a podcast. Yep. Um so just I do just kind of want to recap like the big things that stand out as a like if you haven't read Vonnegut before here's what you're in for and if you like are sort of familiar with Vonnegut like it's in this book too. So like this- I would I would also remind me that I have a question for you about people who haven't read Vonnegut. Okay. That okay. I don't want to do now because I don't want to derail you, which I've already done. But no, I, want, I just want to—I want to close the show on it, I guess. Okay. Um, so there's the "so it goes" thing that repeats a lot that I found really effective, which plays into his uh, kind of emotional, emotionally detached quality that is like reinforced by the terse, almost journalist voice, um, which he'll like drop out of when he needs to for effect. Um, but it serves yeah, that's, him a lot. Uh, that's I um I almost commented on that earlier. Is it's I think to write about something like this, you almost have to detach yourself from it. In yeah, some way. yeah, yeah, it, yeah. And so it allows him to be like darkly comic without betraying what he's actually feeling about the things. Um, there is like as I said, this idea of like Christian cruelty. Billy at the end of the book, you see him like. I guess spreading the gospel of Trafalgaria in a baseball stadium after <laughs> the United States has been split up into like 20 different countries so as not to threaten world peace anymore. And he is killed. Um, sort of like a, his own little mess- messianic death there. So just think about that imagery. Um, there's the aliens that are the little plunger people that teach us about time. I don't... So I do want to kind of close on that so the thing about them that this whole notion of like well just experience the good times because we can see all time all at once i actually found myself kind of recoiling from that worldview because it it um it enables at its worst it enables passivity and inaction and i guess at its best it like offers you perspective on bad hard things um and i I feel like it's almost it's almost an avoidance mechanism like if you if you only focus on good stuff then you're never gonna learn from bad stuff and i think for better or worse most of us do our best learning from bad things yeah or when things go wrong yeah because it's like you tried a thing and there was failure or some something didn't go the way you expected and Either you learn how to do it the way you expect next time, or you learn how to deal with that disappointment. Yeah. Like if you, like loss. if you do something and it's a success, and I'm thinking specifically about rooms that I've painted in my house. <laughs> if you do something and it's a success, that yeah. doesn't necessarily mean that you've figured out the best way to do the thing. <laughs> it might be almost better to do it bad first a times. Yeah, yeah, that's good. I like that. <laughs> yeah. um, so, like, I think 
their worldview, these aliens, Billy is like, he can't unsee it and he can't unexperience it. But I don't, I don't know it, that Vonnegut, I don't know if Vonnegut is either endorsing it or trying to dissuade us from it. I think he's writing it probably from a place where he was experiencing it himself. Um, Cause that's the only way that this, his life made sense at the moment but i do think that there is a anybody who looks at that and unequivocally is like yeah i guess that's the way to go i personally i found that not helpful i found that to be like mm, that's an excuse not to jump in that's an ex- sure you know um but it, but it's what it gives you as a tool for processing grief. I think is also like a good thing. Ah, oh, everything's a mixed bag. Ask your question, man. Everything's a mixed bag. <laughs> <laughs> so you've read Cat's Cradle and you've read Slaughterhouse Five. Yes. If you were if you were recommending to somebody the, their first Vonnegut book, I'm curious about which of those two that you would tell people to do because I feel like Slaughterhouse probably has slightly more to say or is like the more significant work but cat's cradle is structurally easier to follow to my to my yeah, memory so like to, how, do you, how do you feel about that i would probably recommend slaughterhouse to folks just because it's the one it's the one that you can dive into and if you've read some short stories of his which i have in in high school and since and kind of remember the the odd like real world but make it sci-fi like twilight zone <laughs> quality of them like two sure. that's two that stick out in my brain are harrison bergeron where like everybody has like idealized selves or I or always, not always 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 think that harrison bergeron is the guy who hosts <laughs> dancing with the stars <laughs> it might be him just think about it his um, brother. And one of his first stories, The Barnhouse Effect, which is like a guy who can basically do nuclear bombs with his brain um, and like starts a whole like war to control him. That, I think, served me well as an entry point for this because I didn't expect a linear followable narrative. I was kind of ready to go moment to moment with Slaughterhouse-Five. For looking, trying to remember several years ago my experience with Cat's Cradle, it had some more classic hallmarks of a sci-fi story in that it had a MacGuffin in Ice Nine. It, yeah, right. It had some political intrigue that I think looking back on it was maybe like in reading it for the show, I didn't process all of it. There's like a there's like some like isolated country that they have to invade or something. There's like a hotel where a dictator's hold up or something. Well um, and the and the the context that that we'd be reading that book in now is different enough from our context oh, just yeah. a few years ago that maybe different stuff would stick out. That's true. That's true. If we um, read it again, that one is much more explicitly about like the tools by which we could destroy ourselves and like what the knowledge to to have them means and what the responsibilities of them are. This is way more about the like the existential crisis of of living through what those tools can can cause sure um so i guess choose your path accordingly based on those options i guess i'm I'm wondering when at what point do we go back around and start episode one and just do the whole show again oh no (laughs) the remake (laughs) the gritty reboot of over two (laughs) over two over two andrew I've seen Avenge the, the Fallen. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen the future. We've done that podcast and it goes great. Uh, thanks to everyone for listening. Um, Andrew, thanks for revisiting the story with me. Of course. Um, apologies again that we are unstuck in time and you have to wait uh, for vampires and wolves and things till next week. Um, if you have any thoughts about Vonnegut, uh, you can send them into us at overduepod at gmail.com. Hit us up online at twitter.com slash overduepod or facebook.com slash overduepod. As I said, we're recording this out of linear time, so I don't know who's been tweeting at us, but presumably it was you and you did a great job. Andrew, if thanks. folks want... <laughs> not you. Now I'm talking to you, Andrew. No, I was saying thanks to the people at home who oh. all tweeted at us and did a really good job at okay. it. Okay. If they want to know more about the show, though, where should they go? 
They should go to OverduePodcast.com. Up there we have links to Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and our RSS feed. Rate and review us on iTunes. Makes us feel good. And all them stars are awful pretty. Uh, we got a Patreon page, patreon.com slash OverduePod. You can recommend books to us using that mechanism. Um, we do, we get a lot of non-Patreon recommendations and we do have a document where those yeah. things all sort of live, but the only way to guarantee that eventually one day between one and one half years from now <laughs> that we will read your book is to do it through Patreon. Um, our April schedule, Craig, do you have that to hand? No. Obviously we do Breaking Dawn, the next book in the Twilight series hate to break it to you andrew but we have not finalized the april schedule oh, as man, of this recording uh, so can when you, you say we you say we but you mean me can and you, that sucks can you time code it right now and i'll cut this nonsense no out. i think it's good like leave it in like just let the public pressure <laughs> get to me so by the time this episode airs we will have a schedule you will have already seen it probably and this will just be a bunch of jokes to you yeah, and I'm gonna I'm gonna go I'm gonna log off and I'm gonna go fill in those slots in the schedule right now because I feel bad because <laughs> I've been publicly dragged on a time delay but still n- nevertheless publicly dragged. Yeah. Um. All right, everybody, come back next week for sexy vampires and trucks. And until then, try to be happy. That was a HeadGum Podcast.